Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, especially for bearing the, uh, the coming through um, despite the rainy weather. Um, my name is Rosemary Hole, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center and our director, Father Charles Schuos, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone who is joining us tonight in person and online, and to welcome um, our four-time international whistling champion and author of Find Your Whistle, Simple Gifts, Touch Hearts, and Change Lives, Christopher Ullman. Christopher is a managing director at one of the world's most powerful equity firms, but in his spare time, he has performed with major symphony orchestras, serenaded President George W. Bush in the Oval Office, whistled the national anthem, national anthem at major league sporting events, and entertained millions around the world. He has appeared on The Tonight Show, The Today Show, CNN, NPR, CNBC, and been featured in The New York Times, People Magazine, The Washington Post, and Time Magazine. In what Chris describes as his ministry, he whistles happy birthday more than 400 times each year to his friends and family. And this leads us to tonight's discussion on Christopher's new book, Find Your Whistle, Simple Gifts, Touch Hearts, and Change Lives. Christopher is going to show us how we can use our unique gifts to make the world just a little better. And with that, please join me in welcoming Christopher Ullman. If you're a jazz fan, then hopefully you recognize that it's on Duke Ellington, uh, Take the A Train. And I, I love to whistle jazz. It really makes me happy. It makes my heart sing and my lips pucker, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, so it is really great to be here. And thanks to Father Charles and Rosemary and her team here for inviting me. And it's a, I just um, love all things Catholic. I am Catholic. And um, so it's a really great opportunity to talk about whistling and to talk about our simple gifts. And because ultimately, this book is—it's really two components to it. it. It's kind of a lot of fun stories, and so I have 50 years of whistling stories because I just turned 55 and I started whistling when I was five. So I've, I'm celebrating my golden whistling anniversary, uh, which I'm very excited about. And uh, actually, it's kind of funny because uh, National Public Radio said they're going to do a story on this. Kind of almost kind of making fun of it that it's just so outrageous that I would have a golden whistling anniversary. But you know, when you're trying to sell a book, you will do anything. So trust me. <laughs> um, so there's lots of stories, and Rosemary mentioned some of them, and I'll, I'll tell a few stories. Uh, but the underlying message is that everyone has a simple gift. That mine happens to be whistling, but each of you has gifts as well, and you can have more than one gift, which is really nice. Uh, and the, the goal is to figure out what is your gift and to find it, hence the name of the book, Find Your Whistle, uh, and then to develop it and share it. And my message is one person at a time. is to Don't worry about saving the world. Just worry about the person next to you. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in more detail in a moment. 
So a lot of people over the years have said to me, champion Whistler, how is that even possible? And so I, I try to tell them about my journey. So I started when I was five years old, and my father was a pretty accomplished Whistler. Not, not a champion, but he was able to pucker and blow and, and make music. And so I grew up hearing him whistle, which is always a lot of fun. So around the house, I'd follow him, and he'd be whistling, and then I was able to whistle too. So uh, in, in what I found right away is that it really it tapped into what I love, which is music. And what's really interesting about whistling is that you can make your favorite song happen rather than just think about it. So if you're walking down the street, and even on the way here, uh, I was warming up in the car. I was whistling uh, Beethoven's First Symphony. And if I want to whistle uh, Dvorak's Ninth Symphony, I can just you know, burst into song. And, and we all know the, the important role that music can play in our lives. And so to be able to make it happen rather than think about it has been a great blessing in my life. So I started when I was five, and like a lot of things, I wasn't very good at first, but I kept practicing and getting better and better. And thankfully, I actually like to practice, and because to get good at anything, as you know, you got to really work at it. But I had these very key moments throughout my whistling career that um, helped me advance, as well as kind of signal that there was potential there. So when I, was, uh, when I was a teenager, I had a paper route. I grew up on Long Island in New York. So for two hours every day, I would deliver my newspapers. But rather than just kind of pedal along on my little Schwinn Stingray, I would whistle. So my, neighbor, my uh, neighbors and my customers you know, would hear me coming, and sometimes they would hide if it was payday. But, um, <laughs> and back then, it was, it was more about kind of volume versus quality. Uh, and, and when I was, uh, especially as a kid, I whistled almost exclusively classical music and because that's what was played around the house and you know, all the, you know, the Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, Brahms, Tchaikovsky-type music. So I really uh, have a pretty wide repertoire in terms of classical music. But then when I was at my, kind of my late teens, I started listening to The Grateful Dead and more what we now call classic rock. Where I, so I learned how to improvise and jam and... So it kind of taps into both sides of my brain. There's kind of the structured classical side, and then there's the more free-form improvisational side. So um, with A-Train, the one I uh, started with, you know, if I was with a band, you know, we could go for 10 minutes with that song. You know, you've, you know the main tune. Bum, bum, ba, dum, bum, bum, bum. But there's a lot of jamming involved. So uh, the ability to improvise has been really helpful to me through the years as I've um, you know, tried to expand my repertoire. Then I had, uh, in college, I had uh, a key moment where, and it's the first time I ever performed with a jazz band, where I was at, uh, a friend's band was performing at a bar, and at the break, this just like popped in my head. I said, hey, uh, his name was uh, Jeff, and I said, hey, do you ever let people sit in with you? And he's, he, he knew me, and he's like, you don't play an instrument? And I said, well, you know, I whistle. And he's like, well, that's a little odd. And I said, well... I'm odd, so why, what, let's, let's go with it here. And so he said, okay. So we, he let me sit in with him, and I, that was the first time I ever jammed with a band. And uh, it was a little scary, and, but the audience liked it. There was some you know, catcalling and the like and people whistling along with me, but uh, it was a really interesting start. And so through the years, uh, I've actually sought out those kinds of opportunities to whistle with bands. So I've, I've whistled at pretty much every wedding I've ever gone to, where, of course, at the invitation of the bride, because I, you can, and, and the bride's mother. You've got to keep her, the, the bride's mother happy as well. Um, and, and so 
it's very funny because they'll they'll walk up to the band and and kind of whisper in their ear, hey, we have a friend here who's a whistler. Can he jam with you? And they're usually like they, their eyebrows will furrow a bit and say, uh, okay, you know. And uh, as long as they don't embarrass us. And um, and then I had this other very key moment where I was uh, hiking in the Shenandoah National Park. This is in 1992 on a place called Old Rag. And if you've never hiked it, you should because it's beautiful. And uh, so I'm hiking and whistling, of course, and uh, a friend of a friend said, wow, you're a good whistler. You should do something with that. And I said, well, I've heard there is a a convention or a competition for whistling here in the United States, but I don't know much about it. And so the mutual friend said, if it exists, I will find it. So this is 92, of course, so they didn't, there was was no internet. So she went to this place, it's called a library, and it has books in it. Um, And and she found, sure enough, a directory of national events, and there was the National Whistler's Convention. I mean, and I was just shocked, because this was more of a recollection of mine that this thing existed. So uh, I signed up, and I went and competed. And what was interesting about it is that, so I was always the whistler, you know, like in quote marks, in my home, at my school, or at college, or, but so I didn't know any other whistlers. So I did, did, did not know how good I was. So here I was going to this competition where all the other the whistlers were convening and converging, and to see who was the best whistler. And at that point, it, it was the only competition in the world, but it was called the national competition. It, it became the international competition a year later. Uh, and sure enough, I won a prize, which was just shocking to me and because I didn't know what to expect. Uh, and I whistled this song. And it goes on and on and on, but that's Glenn Miller's In the Mood. So uh, in the competition, there is two categories. There's popular music and classical music, and you have to compete in both. And I came in second place in the pop category, and I thought, wow, there's hope for me. So this is now 93 is the first time I competed. And then 94, I went back, and I, and I spent a year like focused on this. I said, I'm going to try to win this thing. And I rehearsed all year, came up with good songs, and uh, sure enough, I won. And it was just a wild, wild experience. Uh, forgive me, Father, but all hell broke loose. It was, uh, it was pretty wild. And um, so I, I truly got my 15 minutes of fame uh, because the, the day after I got back from the competition, the Today Show calls, the Tonight Show calls, you know, People Magazine. I was on C-SPAN. I was like the, the whistling Capitol Hill staffer, I mean, because I worked on the Hill at that time. Uh, and it just has unleashed... Uh, to, to paraphrase uh, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, what a long, strange trip it's been. Because in the, the, the intervening 24 years since I won that competition, it has just been a wild, bizarre experience. I mean, I have like, whistled in a job interview at a federal agency, and I, I now have my whistling ministry. I'm up to, Rosemary said 400, which was accurate, but now I'm up to 525 a year. Uh, and you know, I've, I've met all sorts of interesting people through this. Uh, my current boss is a, is a billionaire, David Rubenstein, who runs our firm. He has me like, warm up for him before he gives speeches. I mean, it's like very bizarre things. I've, I've whistled at the top of the Washington Monument on the outside, Yankee Doodle Dandy, and uh, we'll, we're going to circle back to that at the end. So it's been just this wild, weird journey, and it's since I have always had a day job, and you know what they say, don't quit your day job when you have a weird musical talent. 
Uh, and so I've so for the past thirty years, I've kind of whistled at the intersection of politics because I've lived in Washington and Wall Street because for the past seventeen years, I've worked at a global investment firm based here, though we have operations around the world. So because of that intersection, I have been able to share my whistle with just all sorts of interesting people and circumstances and the like. And what, one thing that's interesting is not, not everyone likes it. It's a very binary kind of thing. Like there, I presume most of you think it's at least interesting, otherwise you wouldn't have come. But um, that doesn't mean you actually like it. And, but I've had these experiences where I will meet someone who you would think it was cool but has no interest in it. So, for example, the, uh, the music director at my church. So I walked up to him after hearing him. This is 20 years ago. And I said, I said, John, I said, I really enjoy your choir, and you're really good. I said, would you ever let me perform with you? And I, I'm a champion whistler. And he said to me, you should sing with the choir. So, of course, I assumed he misheard the question. And I said, no, 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 I want to whistle with, the, with you sometime. And he said, you should sing with the choir. And I was like, ah, okay, I get it now. But then I meet the, uh, the associate director at the National Symphony Orchestra, and she hears I'm a whistler, and her eyes light up, and she said, hey, would you like to perform with the National Symphony in front of 60,000 people? And I said, uh, yeah, let's do it. So you never know. And then I, I meet Newt, Newt Gingrich, and I'm in an elevator with him, and John Kasich, who's now the governor of, of uh, Ohio, and New, uh, John was my boss at the time when he was the budget committee chairman on the House side. And anyone who knows Kasich or saw him in the debates, you know, he's kind of wiry, and he's kind of funky, and he's like, it's just Newt. Kasich, me, and a, and a bodyguard in an elevator in the Capitol. And, Newt, and Kasich says, Newt, Newt, Chris the Champion Whistler. You got to hear him. You're really interesting. And Newt is like stone-faced, <laughs> like just looking ahead. And, I'm, and then so Kasich, undeterred, is like, he's been on the Tonight Show. He's been on the Today Show. He's amazing. Nothing. So and I, I'm like shrinking in the corner, like trying to like, like this is very awkward. Um, but then... Then I, I meet the, the head of the New York Stock Exchange, uh, and one of my other bosses, the one who had me whistle in my job interview, like had me whistle for him, and it like stone-faced, nothing. It is just it's very binary. People either get it or they don't get it, and I don't take it personally. I used to, but I realized after all these years that it's not everyone's cup of tea. But, but thankfully, uh, you know, the overall feedback has been positive and uh, it's been just an amazing part of my life, which I really never could have anticipated you know, when I was five years old and just you know, whistling some Beethoven or a Mozart. Uh, so it's been a truly amazing journey. Uh, and as you can imagine, it's just led to these kind of weird circumstances. So, so I, it was, this is 2001, and I worked for George W. Bush uh, kind of in his orbit, but I, I didn't work for him directly. I wasn't on his personal staff, and I'd never met him. I hadn't been in the Oval Office, but I worked at, at, at OMB. I was OMB spokesman at the time. And I had uh, the chance to whistle happy birthday for his chief of staff one time, a guy named Andy Card, who was, this is the beginning of the Bush administration, and then uh, which went well. And then apparently Card then told Bush about hey, there's this Whistler guy over at OMB. And so one day I, I walk into um, Mitch Daniels, who's now the, who was the governor of uh, Indiana, is now the president of Purdue. I walk into Mitch's office, and, and Mitch says, hey, um, everyone leave. 
Ullman, you stay. Now, when you're a spokesman, that's usually a bad sign. That means, like, you said something stupid in the New York Times and your job is now at risk. Uh, but with this kind of Cheshire grin, he says to me, get your jacket. We're going to whistle for the president in the Oval Office. And I'm like, which president? He's like, the president. And I'm like, I, I just couldn't believe it. So I, I ran up to my office. I get my jacket. And I quickly called my wife. And I said, Chris. Well, her name's Chris, too. Mom, Chris, and Chris. Okay. <laughs> and I say, Chris. It's Chris. She's like, yeah? It's only 8.30 in the morning. What could be wrong? And I said, I'm going to the Oval Office to whistle for the president. She said, can I come? And I said, no, i got to go. Sorry. <laughs> um, so then we go over to the Oval Office, and it is, it is just a truly bizarre experience. And so I, I walk in, and Bush is at his desk. His feet are up on the desk. And it's just emblazoned in my memory. I, I, again, I'd never met him personally. Uh, and he's leaning back, and he's got an unlit cigar in his hand, just kind of like hanging out. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, and then he sees me, and he like, jumps up, and he comes around the desk, and he said, he shakes my hand, and he said, you know, who taught you how to whistle? Do you sit? Do you stand? you need some water? And I was like, dude, dude, I'm moist and puckered. I'm ready to go. All right. <laughs> and then uh, so I, we chit-chatted for a few moments, and he's like, whistle for me. And I said, this is my first presidential directive. I was like, yeah. It's not like write a press release. It's like, whistle for me. I love it. And I said, uh, well, what kind of music do you like? And he said, country western. And I was like, oh, no. You know, you never, you should, it's like a lawyer. You shouldn't ask a question you don't know the answer to. So I said, I thought really fast, and I said, how about the Lone Ranger song? He's like, perfect. Now, I didn't have the heart to tell him it's an Italian opera. All right. But, but they, maybe, he didn't, he, maybe he thought I didn't know the difference between the William Tell Overture and Rossini and Hank Williams. But anyway, uh, so I, I whistled. It goes on and on and on. So Bush was happy. So I thought, all right, we're off to a good start. And we chit-chat some more. And, uh, and then he's like, well, do something hard. I'm like, oh, man, that was pretty hard. <laughs> you can tell he's very like, hyper-competitive kind of guy. Uh, so at one point I say, um, how about some classical music? And he's like, not Bach. Does not like Bach. I'm like, all right, the greatest musician ever. That's fine. Okay. No. <laughs> He said, well, ask the vice president. So in the meantime, like I was so focused on Bush, there were like 10 people had walked in, and it was like Dick, Dick Cheney and Andy Card, Alberto Gonzalez, and anyone who's been in Washington for a while knows all these bigwig people. So then uh, I whistled a few more songs, and, um, and then um, it, it was really an amazing experience. And uh, I'm going to circle back to this towards the end and tell you how, it, how the, the Oval Office gig ended. But from this very auspicious setting, the Oval Office, to uh, slightly less auspicious. So I was, I was on a, a, a taxiing jumbo jet. So we, I was in Istanbul on a business trip, and we had just left the gate. So we are rumbling towards uh, the runway. And my phone rings, and my wife says, hey, uh, have you whistled for uh, Becky for her birthday? Now, Becky at the time was our, our babysitter's mother. Now, anyone who has kids and knows that date night is really critical. So you have to keep the babysitter and her mother, in this case, happy. So I said, no, we're, we're, we left the gate already. I'm buckled in. I mean, we're about to take off. She's like, date night. And then she hangs up. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> so I said, uh-oh. All right, so I, I said, this is like desperate times call for desperate measures. So I looked around, 
And even the flight attendants were buckled in. So I said, this is very important. So I got up, I went to the bathroom, uh, I shut the door, and I speed dial Becky. Thankfully, I got her voicemail because there was no time to chit-chat. I, I deliver a very crisp and efficient happy birthday. I flush for effect because you know what that would be. <laughs> Got to be able to prove that this was from a bathroom. <laughs> and I, uh, I hang up. I run back to the seat, and just as the nose is leaving the ground, and date night lives on. So it was well worth it. So it was it was a pretty fun experience. And um, I had a another very interesting opportunity to do a TED talk and. Uh, it was fun the way it came about. It was where my boss, and this is in 2012, gave a, a talk at TEDx Mid-Atlantic. So you have the mothership TED, and then you have kind of regional TEDs, and this was the, the one for the Mid-Atlantic region. And my boss spoke at it, and I was there because I'm the tag-along PR guy. And then the, um, the organizer came up to me afterwards and said, hey, we're organizing next year's TED. Would you like to... Uh, no, he said... Um, let us know if you know of any interesting speakers. So being a shameless self-promoter, I said, uh, yeah, here's my card, but it was my day job card. And I just said, look me up. And I ran away with the boss. So like six months go by, and I get this phone call out of the blue with just a string of expletives. I didn't know. You didn't tell me you're a blah, 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 whistler. And I said, who is this? And he's like, it's Sarge from TEDx. We need you to do a TED Talk on whistling. And I thought, oh, wow. Uh, I don't know what I'd say. So he said, well, think about it and then come back to me. So I, I spent literally a couple of months trying to figure out why would anyone care that I can whistle well. So I started making a list of all of my fun whistling stories, a, a couple of which I've told you. And so I, I had a lot of good content from a, an, an event standpoint, but I didn't have a message. And anyone who's ever seen a TED Talk knows you need, you have like 15 minutes max to make a point. Like, what is the, the core takeaway? So I pondered more and more and more, and then on a bike ride one day, I started kind of comparing and contrasting and trying to figure out if there was some theme that was running through all of these stories. And then one day it just dawned on me on this bike ride that, that I'm not a hero. I am just a whistler. Nonetheless, I've been able to take this simple gift and brighten people's day with it, whether it's someone on their birthday or the president in the Oval Office, or countless other stories that I try to capture in the book. And so it occurred to me that that is the theme, is that we have a very hero-centric culture. We love our heroes, and they could be sports figures or politicians or rock stars or just other freaky people, and they become our heroes. And you know, some of them have actually done heroic things, and some others perhaps not. Um, but the bottom line is that most of us are not heroes. Very few of us are, in fact. And, and the world's problems and challenges are, are far exceed the hero's ability to solve them. So it's really incumbent upon us as individuals to do our part, worrying about the person next to me and not worrying about the rest of the world. Now, I would never discourage someone if they actually are heroes and are capable of making the, the world a better place. I think that's great. But that is so rare that if someone is fixated on either it's big or nothing, then they're really missing the point. And there, there's so much in scripture that gets at the heart of this. So I, I'm not inventing a concept here. Uh, I am just trying to give name to it. Uh, because ultimately, I think if you name your gift or 
the metaphor is your whistle, then the odds are you will be more inclined to develop it and to share it and to make a difference with the people that you encounter in your life, you know, kind of day in and day out. So I did the TED Talk, and it, it was really an amazing experience because I don't have the best memory, so I had to memorize verbatim. This Mine was 19 minutes long because when you throw in all the music, because I had a pianist and a violinist with me. And if you, if you haven't seen the TED Talk, it's really fun um, because of this, the musicians who joined me. And there's one guy who is a violinist with the National Symphony who um, has made a violin out of a baseball bat, and he calls it a battle-in. Uh, very, very cute name. And he goes around the country performing the national anthem with his bat Olin, and it does a kind of a Jimi Hendrix version of it. So he and I did dueling banjos in my TED Talk, so it's, it is a lot of fun to, uh, to check that out. Anyway, so I do the talk. It was a lot of fun, and uh, my wife says, you should now capture all this in a book. So that's how the book came to be, and it, it took around uh, the, you know, four, four or five years or so to actually write it, find a publisher, and you know, do all those kinds of things. But was, one of the interesting things is that while I was writing the book, you know, I'm a PR guy, so I'm used to talking about other people and my bosses and my companies and things like that. But in this case, I was writing about me. So I, I, got, I started to feel a little insecure that people would just grow tired about reading about my literal whistle, so I decided that I would feature other people whose whistles have touched my heart. Because ultimately, the goal is for the reader to scratch his or her head and say, all right, well, Ullman's a whistler, and he's done some good things with that. Good for him. Well, what about me? And how am I, you know, have I found my whistle or not? So what I wanted to do is give readers a sense of what a whistle can be so that they will uh, be kind of thoughtful, will get the juices flowing in people's own heads about what your gift can be. So I wanna, I'm going to read you my favorite one, which is about my mom, uh, about what her whistle is. And the way I, I do it here is that there are 10 of them, and there are these little kind of two-page spreads with a nice pen and ink drawing of the person, uh, and then a little blurb here, like 200-word blurb, about you know, what their, their gift is. Uh, so this is, my mom's name is Fran. And uh, she lives around the block from me in Alexandria, which is very nice. And her, her whistle is empathy. So this is how I know her. So we met on May 9th of 1963 at 3.16 p.m., very symbolic, 3.16, in the delivery room of Peck Memorial Hospital in Brooklyn, New York, though I have no recollection of the blessed event. That's the day I was born. It's supposed to be funny, but okay, whatever. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right, so this is her whistle in action. So in our kitchen growing up hung a plaque. Great spirit, grant that I might not criticize my neighbor until I have walked a mile in his moccasins. That well captures my mother's spirit of empathy, which pervades her thoughts and deeds. It's as if her own challenging childhood gave her a window into the hidden struggles that so many of us have. When my siblings and I complained of annoying grade school classmates, mom's response was universally, be nice to them, they have problems at home. And though the response itself was frustrating to a preteen seeking validation of grievances, over time it seeped into my soul. Today when I show compassion to someone in need, it's my mom's heart and love that I'm channeling. Her empathy is so simple but so mind-bogglingly deep. It comes from a complex place I will never fully comprehend, and it manifests itself in ways that are obvious and devoid of rationale as pure love should be. It is instinctual and joyous. 
And because of her, I try hard to ask questions and listen to the answers. I've learned to extend a hand rather than a finger, and I've seen that the journey is better if the shoes I'm wearing aren't always mine. So that's Fran, and anyone who has ever met her in her 81 years of life has experienced her gift of empathy because she's a truly, truly remarkable uh, person and mom. And I'm not going to read nine others, but I'll just give you a, a little smidgen of you know, what some of these other whistles are. Um, so I feature two Catholic priests, one of whom is a Legionaries of Christ um, named Father Michael Sliney. Perhaps some of you have heard of him. And every day he sends out a video, a 50-second video uh, on it could be any topic. It could be about the Beatitudes or about one of his uh, fellow priests who made dinner the night before. And it's just this little kind of packet of love and reflection and all with the goal of bringing people closer to their, their faith. Every day he does that. And it is this very simple gift that has had a meaningful impact in my, uh, my life and, and helping me to become a better Christian and a better Catholic. So that's his, um, that's his whistle. I feature another priest named Father John Adams who runs So Others Might Eat. It's the homeless shelter here in D.C., and his gift is, his uh, whistle is love. So he spent more than 40 years, he's just dedicated his life to helping homeless people. Uh, I feature uh, a young lady who makes this awesome Christmas card every year, and for 25 years, it's, it's my favorite Christmas card, and it's homemade, which is very rare. And she's very crafty, and it's the card that we love the most. And it's very simple, but it adds to that very special season in our household. And when I called her up, and she's from Minnesota, so she's very Minnesota nice, and she says, oh, I, you, I don't need to be in your book. It's just a card. And I said, that's really the point. It's just a card. But you put your creativity and your love into it, and it, it, it matters to us. We really like it. And then she was, she was very humbled by that and said, okay, I, I will concede and you can put me in your book. And, um, and then there's one other person who is uh, really special to me is some, a gentleman who used to work for me who's now retired. But for many, many, many years, he's made carrot cake for people. Uh, when we worked together, everyone's birthday on our team, he would make a carrot cake. And even though we haven't worked together in 18 years, he still makes a carrot cake for me every year. And he, he calls me up the week before and says, calls me boss still. Boss, would you like your carrot cake? And I said, yeah, that would be great. I love the carrot cake. And A, he doesn't have to do it. B, it's very, very simple. But I love it. It's just one of those little things that just adds to my life. It adds to this richness. And, then, and he's extending himself in this very simple but loving way. And, and that's really what it's about, is that once you get away from the hero complex and you focus on these little things then you realize what you as an individual are capable of doing because this is very much an empowerment message. I, I had an opportunity to give uh, this talk at my daughter's school. She goes to Oakcrest. Uh, um, she's a sophomore. And at their National Honor Society event, and uh, the, you know, the, the headmaster said, you know, I want you to inspire these girls to help them realize what they are capable of achieving. And you know, it, was, it was an important mandate. And... Uh, thankfully, it went well. I did not embarrass my daughter. That would be bad. And, um, uh, but kind of reaffirming individuals, whether you're 60 years old or 100 years old or you know, a 16-year-old girl, of what you are capable of doing. 
you know, especially when you get away from the hero complex and you worry about the person next to you. Because when you think about it, it's really amazing that from the, day, the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, you will encounter dozens, if not scores, of people. Just think about it. Just the course of your day. They could be your spouse. They could be family members. They could be housemates. They could be the person who sells you the, the mocha skim latte at the Starbucks, or they could be colleagues. I mean, you name it, complete strangers, taxi drivers, whatever. Do we love those people? I mean, are you like proactively making a point of loving the people that you encounter in your life, sharing your gifts with them, realizing what you as an individual are capable of doing in terms of outreach in very simple ways? That is really an empowering kind of situation to be in. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, one of the things I've loved about giving these talks and promoting the book over the past year is that I've, I've met all these people who come up to me after events and say, either I don't have a whistle, like, declare it. I'm like, all right, well, let's talk about it. <laughs> Maybe you do. Let's, let's, let's work it through. And other people say, I want to tell you about my whistle. I'm so excited to tell you about it. And I met uh, two people recently, and they, their whistles were are, again, so simple, but they're really, really interesting. So one guy I, I met at a conference, uh, well, I was the speaker at a, a U.S. government, a Medicare conference, interestingly. Thankfully, the press didn't hear about that. You can imagine, Whistler speaks at government event, tra- travesty, you know, whatever. Um, and so this gentleman uh, came up to me afterwards and said, and my whistle is that when I'm at one of these events, where there are a lot of people who don't know each other, he said, I go up to the person who's alone, who's standing in the corner, and you, 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 maybe this happened to you, where they're standing there, they don't know anyone. He goes up to them. His whistle is going up to those people saying, hi, you know, I'm Joe, how are you? And we all know how wonderful that feels when someone else acknowledges you. So simple, but what a powerful little gift that is. And I, I met another woman recently uh, who used to do um, a program for kind of at-risk inner-city youth and uh, had done it for a couple of years. It was going well, but then she had marital problems and busy with her own family, and so she stopped doing it. And one of the kids who was in that program called her recently and said, I really wish you would do this again. And the woman said, you know, I, I just can't do it. I'm just so busy. Um, and then she heard my talk, came up to me afterwards and said, I'm going to do that program again because that is my gift, and I need to share that. I was just blown away by that. And it's, and it's not, again, it's not a heroic thing. It's just trying to remind people of what they as individuals are capable of achieving when you, they put the work into it. Um, so it, it's, really, it's really pretty powerful. I have a, a few more things I wanted to talk about, but if anyone has any questions in the meantime, I am happy to uh, uh, address those. Because there's going to be an opportunity for you to whistle with me. So get, get ready. No question, re- well, no question related to whistling could possibly be silly. Okay. Can you hear me? Everyone can hear me? Okay. Uh, my question is, when you whistled in the bathroom on the airplane, did people hear you from outside and ask you questions about it? Because I'm thinking if I heard somebody in a bathroom on an airplane whistling, I'd be really confused about it. Yeah. Well, but you didn't receive any strange looks, because that's what I was thinking the whole time. Uh, you know, I may, ha- I may have. Well, first, my main concern was this with Turkey. Who knows what they would have done to me if, if I got caught? Uh, but thankfully, I didn't. 
Uh, so actually, it's a very good question, that, though I don't recall anything in particular uh, in terms of odd looks. I mean, I do get odd looks from people occasionally uh, and other odd things, but uh, no, but that's, I've never heard that question before. That's good. I like it. I'm just curious to know what's the end of the story of the Oval Office. Ah, well, you're, you, you will hear that in a moment. I'm going to keep you waiting just a, a tiny bit longer. Um, what's a common whistle? that you've heard about from people? Common gift. Ah, empathy. So the one that I cited from my mom, uh, a number of people have cited that. You know, people who are good listeners, who really make the effort, especially if someone is in need or you know, is having emotional issues or you know, just some other thing. That I think, and, that, and that, I think, is, is a very powerful whistle you know, because... You know, there are, I mean, yes, making a cake for someone is a good thing, and I love it, and it, it's my friend John's whistle. But I, I think in the spectrum of whistles, the, the effort someone makes to listen to someone and to be attentive and helpful as appropriate, I think, is an amazing gift. You know, I mentioned before there are people who just declare they don't have a whistle. And it's, on one hand, it's, it's a little sad but I, I appreciate it because I think those people are stuck in the hero mentality rather than trying to figure out, you know, what am I capable of doing? Uh, yeah, somewhat along those lines. Uh, did you uh, learn to whistle you know, everything on your own or did you – were there some kind of lessons or some, some kind of, something along those lines? Uh, so I – in terms of my, my actual whistling ability, so all the like, different techniques and I can demonstrate a couple of them. That those are all self-taught. The, my musical ability, which is applicable to any instrument, came about through choir. So I, if anyone's ever sang in a choir, you, uh, it's a great way to learn how to make music. Uh, because ultimately, music is really you know, stringing notes together in, and shaping them. It's sort of like writing. I mean, when you're a good writer, you're stringing words into sentences and sentences into paragraph, and you're telling a story. And great music is really about storytelling because you're taking the notes and then bringing them to life by – you have your technical side, your, your pitch and your range and the like. But ultimately, you want to be able to shape it in, in, in phrases that will uh, help people uh, enjoy it and, 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 and hopefully appreciate the way you interpret it. Uh, you know, from an interpretive standpoint, I've, I've done uh, – I've had a lot of fun whistling the national anthem. So I've, I've whistled at, at the Nationals a few times, the Wizards, um, any Duke fans. I whistled at Cameron Indoor Stadium for 9,000 insane Duke, Duke fans. Uh, and the national anthem is a really fascinating piece of music. And uh, when, you, when you have to conquer something like that, if, especially if you want to be really thoughtful about it, you, you just take the music and you just kind of deconstruct it. Uh, and the national anthem has four parts to it. There's the first verse. It's kind of an A, A, B, C structure. So you have first verse, then it repeats, A, and then A. And, that's, and then you have this little bridge, that's the B, and then you have this kind of the, the end. And I, I in, each, each part has to be interpreted. So when, when you hear someone perform the national anthem, I mean, there are kind of like flat versions of it, but then there are stylized versions of it. So I mean, one of the things I've had to develop over time, and choir has helped me with this, is kind of the interpretive side of it. So, for example, if you have a repeated phrase, and I learned this in choirs, you don't do it the same way you know, 
the next time. I mean, if you do it one way the first time, you should do it slightly different the next time to try to make it a little more interesting and not kind of droning on with the same, the same um, interpretation of it. Actually, I have um, a quick funny uh, funeral story. So, uh, so I, my, um, and this relates to the point I was just making. So I'm sure most people are familiar with the song On Eagle's Wings, uh, which is very beautiful, and it's often performed at, at funerals. So my mother-in-law asked me to perform it at her aunt's funeral. And, and so I am, uh, having sung in choirs, and uh, even though I'm doing it a cappella, I am thinking of the words, and there are four verses in that song, at least that, that I recall. So as I as I started whistling it, I've got the words running through my head, do 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 do, you know, first verse, and I'm like most of the way through the second verse, and then my my mother mother in law is like right next to the casket, and most people are like very focused, and she turns around and looks at me, and she's like, like yeah, stop, stop. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what's what's going on? So I I brought the eagle in for a landing, and then afterwards, I she said to me. You got the words going through your head, but you're doing the same verse over and over and over and over again, and two's enough. Okay. We liked, we liked Aunt a lot, but enough. All right. Anyway. Uh, so there, it kind of reminded me of the importance of in- interpreting each verse, especially if you're just repeating it. And it, when you take away the words, it can get a little repetitive. Now, this coming Sunday is Pentecost. All right. So this is pretty amazing. So on Pentecost Sunday last year, my then 11-year-old daughter heard the following scripture. This was from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. So it says, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit. There are different forms of service, but the same Lord. There are different workings, but the same God who produces all of them in everyone. To each individual the manifestation of the Spirit is given for some benefit. I'm going to say that again. To each individual, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for some benefit. So my 11-year-old kind of sidles up to me and says, Daddy, that's what your book is about. And I was like, oh, it's just so sweet. And, and it's really true, is that you know, God has given us gifts. And we just have to ask ourselves a very simple question. What are we going to do with them? And are we going to keep them bottled up, or are we going to let them out? And um, at the end of the book, I have um, kind of a, a, a metaphor in a metaphor. So, of course, whistle is a metaphor because it's a metaphor for your gift. But then at, 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 in, uh, in the epilogue, I talk about how I'm able to whistle with my mouth closed, which is like the ultimate stupid human trick. The point is this, is that it's hard to hear because my mouth is closed. But I am actually whistling with my mouth closed, and if anyone wants to hear afterwards, I'll do it for you. You have to get very close to me, and if that scares you, then I'm sorry. Okay. Um, so, But the metaphor there is that if you don't let your gift out, no one can hear it, which is why the, with the, the, the spirit manifest in us, we need to actually do something about it. So my now 16-year-old daughter said, Daddy, Daddy, you need to write another book. My wife groans, oh, no. I was not very present for the family during the writing of the first one. And, and I said, well, what should I write about? And she said, you need to write about how to find your whistle. And I said, oh, that's a good one. So um, since I haven't written that book, these are, and I'm a PR guy, so I tend to think in groups of three, these are the three things that I think that can help you figure out what your whistle is. 
So the first thing is think small, get away from the hero complex. The second is to do kind of a personal survey of your interests, your skills, and how they intersect with the people you encounter in your life. Again, they could be your family, colleagues, strangers. And to see what resonates and kind of be thoughtful about it, be self-aware and maybe even get feedback from people. And then third is to be courageous and to be bold. Because like that guy who walks up to strangers at a reception, he has to be courageous to do that because we all know just walking up to a total stranger and saying, hi, I'm Chris, and that's awkward. But he just, he just does it anyway. Even So he's bold and he's courageous with it. And, you know, I've tried to do that with my whistling where I will, you know, I now, you know, if, someone, if, I, if I'm at a restaurant and someone's having a birthday, I will sometimes walk up to them and say, hey, I'm a champion whistler. Can I whistle for you? You know, <laughs> now someone might say that's not courageous. That's just stupid. But you never know. Um, but I think that's really what it takes is being bold, being courageous with your gift so that you don't let insecurity stand in the way of that spirit manifesting itself as you're, you're sharing it with people. So those are... So now, I'm going to tell one more story before I get to the, the, the oval, end of the Oval Office. All right. So uh, you may recall, those who've been in Washington for a little while, the, uh, the Washington Monument was damaged in an earthquake in 2011. And my boss, the billionaire guy, Dave Rubenstein, said he would pay for half of the repair, which is pretty not bad to have extra $7.5 million hanging around. Um, so... They started putting the scaffolding up, which was really cool. And I would drive by it every day while going to work. And so level by level by level, all the way up to the tippy top. And so one day, as it was getting right near the top, you know, again, being a PR guy, I was, it just popped in my head. And I said, wow, we should do a photo shoot at the top on the outside. That would be cool. So I call up the National Park Service, and I, I pitch them this idea. And they go, oh, you know, there's liability issues. I'm like, come on, this would be great. This would be, like, totally cool. So I convinced them. Then I had to go convince my boss that this was a prudent thing to do. Uh, he said yes. So that day, it was, a, I think, a Sunday morning, and it was a glorious blue sky. And we're standing at the foot of this 555-foot-tall obelisk, and we're, we're looking up at it. And he looks at me and he says, hey, I bet no one's ever whistled at the top of the Washington Monument. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah. I said, what song do you think I should do? And he said, he said, uh, do Yankee Doodle Dandy in honor of George Washington. So I get to the top, and you can see, it, it, there's a picture of it in here. Of, like, I'm, like, gripping the thing because I was so scared. And, I was on a six-foot-wide platform, 555 feet in the air. The planes coming into Reagan were at our eye level. And I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is crazy stuff. So I did, I did whistle that song. So I'm going to whistle one verse of it, and then you are going to whistle with me. If you can't whistle, you can hum or sing, but hopefully we will have good participation here. Performed at the top of the Washington Monument, and now this is your big chance. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna thank you, thank you. I'm gonna give you the cue. Ready? One, two, three.
Give yourselves a hand. Yeah. All right. That was very well done. Okay. So, all right. So, at the end of the Oval Office gig, uh, Bush says, uh, we'll do some more. And I, I'm like, I, I did some more. And, and then, then I finally said, listen, I don't want to overdo it. And he said, oh, I'll let you know when I've had enough. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, then he said, we'll do one more to get us going for the day. So I said, okay. So I had to think really fast, and I came up with a song I love but had never whistled publicly, which is Battle Hymn of the Republic, which seemed like an, an appropriate song for a presidential gig in advance of 9-11, which, of course, no one knew was going to happen. go. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There you go. <laughs> All right, we got, uh, there are five minutes left if anyone has any final questions. Sorry. Also a good question. Yeah. Good, good to see you again. Hey, uh, all right. I always enjoy your conversations and inspiration and just the, the spectrum of ways that you've been able to serve and minister in the community. So it's very exciting. Thank you. It maybe speaks to a larger question about how you sort of fleshed out your own self-awareness of vocation. I'm, I'm sure you still have somewhat of a day job, but Everything you're describing <laughs> seeming also doesn't let you, you know, quite uh, pick it up right at five o'clock at, as soon as you want to go. Yeah. And things like that. So just s- s- share more about that. Yeah. It, it's actually a very interesting question because it really gets at the heart of kind of identifying and developing and sharing your own whistle. You know, I think like a lot of things in life, it kind of creeps up on oneself. And, and that's why the, kind of the second point of kind of surveying your skills, interests, et cetera, and how they intersect with people, I think, is really a critical part of this. And what I found over time, because I started whistling happy birthday for people kind of back in the early 90s. And at first, it was just kind of total one-off things. Oh, you whistle for this person, you whistle for that person. And um, But then people say, well, why didn't you whistle for me on my birthday this year? And I'm like, oh, well, you noticed? And... They're like, yeah, it was really great. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so then it's like you're starting to pay attention to the feedback you get from people. Uh, and then inevitably you will have these almost epiphanies where like, one time I was whistling. This is years ago. Um, I called up a, an elderly woman who's probably 85 at the time. And, and I had whistled for her for a couple of years at that point. And I got her on her live on her birthday because sometimes I got her voicemail. And this time I got her live. 
and it was three in the afternoon. And um, so I said, you know, how are you doing? And she's like, you know, I'm doing all right. I, I had some surgery recently, so I haven't been out of the house. But and, and then she said, you know, you're the first person I talked to today. I thought, how is that possible? It's her birthday, and it's three in the afternoon. I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And it like just whacked me over the head that this super simple thing, you know, helped me acknowledge her and her value as a person. Because ultimately, the 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 gift of the whistle is really just an acknowledgement that life is the greatest gift. And when she told me that, I thought, you know, you start to think of the logistics of it. Here is she lives in Queens in New York. So you, she lives in one of the, the most densely populated cities on the planet. And she lives in a, a, a tall apartment building alone in this you know, little apartment. And on her birthday at 3 p.m., she still hadn't talked to anyone yet. And then, I, then you start to realize, wow, this is, a pretty, this is simple, but it's powerful in its simplicity. But only if you actually do something with it and make the effort to share it. Um, so... You know, I try to be open to feedback from people, you know, good and bad. And so I think that's over time where it really uh, kind of struck me that this is, uh, it can be a powerful tool to, uh, you know, to acknowledge life. You know, I'm, I believe life is the greatest gift that uh, we have and we must, it's precious and we should honor it. And this is kind of my way of doing that. And, um, you know, I met a guy who one of those people who declared he didn't have a, a gift, a, a special gift, and and I said let's talk, and we talked, and it was, pre- it was so obvious what his gift was, and he he grew up in Anacostia, and uh, uh, he he made it. He had two loving parents, and he got out, and he went to college, and he worked at, works at Bank of America, and his gift is helping people in the inner city who are kind of unbanked. They don't have bank accounts or small businesses that can't get loans. And he's so passionate about it, about giving back in that way. And that, that is so obviously his, his gift. And, and, but he hadn't thought about it that way. And, and his, the eye, his eyes lit up, and he said, wow, this, it's more than a job. It is, it's a gift. And it's, it's, it's kind of your vocation and avocation almost like mixed together and so my goal is to get people thinking along those lines about, you know, what am I capable of doing? Uh, so, you know, I've had other experiences too, but I don't want to belabor the answer. But it, it's a very important question. Thank you. I was going to ask you how to whistle, but I'll ask my brother that. Here's a okay. qu- there's uh, something about uh, people in Japan that are living very long lives. And as my therapist said, they seem to find what they're good at and do it. They're trying to find the secret to their long lives, and it seems to be what you're saying, you're finding their whistle, whatever, and how it all sort of comes together. Japanese people are very good whistlers, too, literally. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. That's where the competition has been held the past few years, in Tokyo, in Tokyo, yeah. Hey, so I was curious about, like, to what extent you think these gifts are kind of um, innate, waiting to be discovered, versus developed uh, or, like, created by the people who kind of work on them themselves. Uh, so is, is, like, really the gift to be able to learn something very quickly, right, to rapidly progress, or is it, like, more about, like, a ceiling? Like, some people have higher ceilings and how high they can progress in some field than others? Or, I mean, maybe it's both. I don't know. Well, I was on uh, the CNBC show Squawk Box uh, right when the book came out, and uh, Andrew Sorkin, who's one of the hosts, was trying to kind of get at what you were getting at. And he said, all right, he said, is your whistle your job 
or your talent or your hobby or your avocation. And I said, no, 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 no. I said, do not overcomplicate this at all. I said, here's the bottom line. The bottom line is we all have gifts, and are we using them to touch other people's lives and hearts? It's really not more complicated than that. So some of them, um, I think from a, like a spirit standpoint or almost like a willingness, like someone's willingness to do something is probably a little more innate. But the, in certain cases, the underlying talent itself, like whistling, has to be developed or cake making or um, for the priest who sends out the, the, the little videos. You know, it's a skill to be able to develop, to be able to have a very concise you know, uh, message in under one minute that is impactful. So I think it's a combination of, of both, that, that we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is amongst us and dwelling in us, and, and I think that can motivate you to develop a talent and then motivate you to actually exercise the talent, which I think is really critical because, again, you know, if you whistle with your mouth closed and no one can hear it, like, what's, the, what's the point? I mean, you might get on David Letterman's stupid human tricks, but that's fleeting in the scheme of things. I hope it's a, a very good existential question, so I hope I uh, got at the heart of it here. Please join me in thanking Mr. Ullman. Ah. Thank you, thank you, thank you.